I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The new recreational cannabis regime will officially come into force on October 17th. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. We will soon have a new system in place, one that keeps cannabis out of the hands of our kids and keeps profits away from organized crime. That's Justin Trudeau in 2018. Our question today, after five years, what impact has the legalization of cannabis had on you, your family, or your community? I work in the ICU in Ottawa, and what we're seeing is overuse of cannabis. Yeah, you can enjoy it in moderation, but I would advise against uh, against heavy usage. Our son, when he was 18, he had a uh, cannabis-induced uh, psychotic episode. There's nothing like a, a multi-week stay in the psychiatric ward to uh, scare you off of marijuana use. That is, of course, an extreme case. A government report says about 22% of Canadians, 15 and over, said they'd consumed cannabis in the past year. And that's almost 30% higher than 2017, the year before legalization. Though the fact it wasn't legal might have made some people reluctant to admit it. Still, there has been a significant shift in this country. People no longer looking over their shoulders when they smoke a joint, gleaming government-regulated stores, and a huge amount of money taken out of the vaults of organized crime. But as you heard, a moment ago, overuse is a serious issue as well. Our question, what impact has the legalization of pot had on you, your family or your community? In the last half hour, we have two great experts for our Ask Me Anything on the Israel-Hamas war. A former Canadian ambassador to Israel and a retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. From CBC Radio, this is Check Up, the podcast. Cross-country checkups live broadcast from October 22nd, 2023. And you've heard me, as I just did, talk about uh, contacting us uh, by uh, going to aircheck, cbc.ca slash aircheck. And our first caller did just that. We're not going to use her name because she's concerned about uh, telling her story and the impact it will have on a member of her family. But uh, she is in Cambridge, Ontario. Hello. Hi. Tell me uh, about legalization and the impact it's had on your family. Um, when my sons were younger, in their early 20s, they may have done it socially, mm-hmm. once or twice kind of thing. It was not a regular thing. But as soon as it became legal, um, he started using it daily. And it got to be so bad to the point that he was spending more than $100 a day. Wow. And um, it caused a lot of mental issues for him and for the rest of our family. Um, he suffered from depression greatly from it. And that led to him needing to be hospitalized. However, there is no real thing in the hospitals of trying to help people that are addicted to marijuana to get off of it. And because of the use of it being legal, now it's like, that's no problem. It's like smoking a cigarette now. Mm-hmm. 
So, so I was going to ask you about that, and, and, and it's the what do you see as the cause and effect between legalization and your son using so much cannabis every day? Well, as I said, when he might have used it sporadically, just socially, um, it wasn't as obvious, and he kept it hidden from me, mm-hmm. which was fine. I, you know, any parent would suspect that their child has tried it at one point or another. But since it became legal, uh, it has affected our family to the point that um, it's led to a very strong addiction, which has caused him to do things that he normally would never have done. Um, And now he is in legal trouble because of it. Mm. And there's just no help out there for him. And I don't think I'm alone. I think that other kids that may not have used it that often or even at all are now suddenly thinking that it's okay to use it. You know, it's available legally. I can buy it. That's mm-hmm. no problem. And I'm talking about in the 20s, not in their teenage years. Yeah. So, so we're still so early in all of this, right? We're five years in. So I, I assume the policymakers, the politicians and, and their staff are learning as well. And so if they're listening... What would you say to them? What, what what do you think the lesson would be here? I would hope that they would make it uh, more difficult, um, maybe even reduce the strains that they're selling. Um, the marijuana of today is not like the marijuana was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. It was far less. Uh, it wasn't as strong. Um, today, it affects them very quickly, and it's just not the same. It's it's very sad to see what it is doing to people that, you know, may never have gone to that point had it not been legalized. And in terms of help for your son and his addiction, you were saying, I think you said that, that he's not able to find the help he needs. Do you think, I, I assume it would exactly. make a difference if somebody could help him. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like there are other addictions, um, people with, like, heroin and the other stronger uh, Mm -hmm. opioids. Um, There is help to a certain point for those people, but marijuana is not seen as a bad thing. Um, So, therefore, there's no help. Doctors cannot do anything. Um, It is legal, so they're an adult. It's up to them to decide what to do. But any time he's tried to quit, and I've tried to help in many ways with that, He's not been successful, and he's ended up going back to it. And it's just, it's very hard to see what he is going through because of it. Maybe we can finish with this. Uh, You know, you've chosen to get in touch with us. We really appreciate your honesty here. And I'd asked you at one point what advice you have for policymakers. What about your advice for other families, whether it's the parents or the kids in their 20s? What would you say to them? Um, I guess I would say to, you know, watch your family carefully, talk to them seriously about the effects, and hopefully the government will bring out more information showing just how addictive it can be and how it will affect families in Canada. It is great for people that use it for medical purposes, and I think that's great, Um, but socially, it's in use all the time now, and that is just sad. It's very sad. People that may never 
have gotten involved in it to that extent when it was illegal are now in a position where they just can't stop. And I hope our government will understand and provide some services to help them to be able to get through the addiction and move on. Thank you so much for reaching out via cbc.ca slash aircheck and for telling your story. We really appreciate it. You're listening to and watching Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. We are live in Vancouver. And our question this week, what impact five years in has legalization of cannabis had on you or your family or your community? The legalization has been getting mixed reviews from many experts, including our next guest. Michael Chayton is a senior scientist at the Centre uh, for addiction and mental health. He's also an associate professor with the University of Toronto's Dalla Lana School of Public Health, and he's here to help answer questions during our first 90 minutes, and we've reached him in Ottawa. Hi. Hi. So five years after legalization, uh, are more people using cannabis than before? We've seen uh, increases in cannabis use among all ages, Uh uh, since legalization, uh, following a trend that was increasing use of cannabis even before legalization. I think as uh, we started to realize that uh, that criminalization of cannabis was uh, a really harmful um, mode of, of, of trying to control cannabis, that we started to see increases in use. And, and those have continued uh, since legalization came in. And, uh, and I would say even more so since uh, commercialization. Of, of cannabis came in. And are you, are you seeing any clear patterns when you break that down by age group or demographic? Uh, so you see uh, a, a number of, of, of patterns. Uh, the first is that it's certainly highest use among young, uh, younger people, 18 to 24. Uh, particularly among young men. Um, you, the, the big change, though, uh, that that group has always used cannabis at the highest rates. Uh, since uh, legalization, the, the greatest change was actually seen among older adults, those over 55, uh, starting from a relatively lower number, but, but increasing at a, a much faster rate. And do you get any sense of what's behind the numbers with that older demographic? Is it that the stigma is erased, that access is easier? Why, why the increase in 55 plus? I think, I mean, they're part of a demographic that would likely uh, have uh, had pretty high rates of use during their youth. Um, and, uh, and I suspect it's also that demographic that might have been reticent to uh, admit to cannabis use on a, a t to surveys. Um, and I've certainly seen it uh, among uh, some adults who, you know, were, were happy to come out of the closet, of the cannabis use closet, I guess, uh, when, when it became legalized and uh, to be a little bit more open about their cannabis use. Well, it um, certainly makes it better for researchers to have people actually answering, you know, surveys accurately, right? It's, it, I mean, it certainly does. I, I, you know, that, that it's, it really is about the, the stigma that, that prevents people from being able to answer honestly. And, um, I, I think there was no question that the criminalization was a really harmful, um, to many, many people. And, uh, that getting rid of that criminalization, uh, has, has helped a tremendous number of people. 
We're here with Michael Chaitin. He's a scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. And our question today, what impact has the legalization of cannabis had on you, your family, or your community? Our number on Cross Country Checkup is 1-888-416-8333. Michael, I'm sure you heard the caller just ahead of you, a mother who talked about her son in his 20s and how since legalization he is using a lot of cannabis every single day, and she associates that with some pretty serious um, psychological problems he's having and legal problems as well. Uh, So what are the signs that someone is developing a a substance abuse problem when it comes to cannabis? When we're uh, defining a substance use disorder, the, the, the shorthand is really that use despite consequences. If you're continuing to use a substance when you don't want to continue to use, when it's causing impacts to uh, your friends and family, to that it's uh, having uh, effects on your ability to to work, to social, be social, to be happy, um, where the use is is not to enjoy uh, the pleasures of the drug, but simply to get back to normal. Those are those are some of the signs of uh, of a cannabis use disorder. And is there data, Michael, on uh, the the relative change, whether it's an increase or not, in in cannabis substance abuse since legalization? Yes. So we've we've seen increases both in in daily use, uh, in overall use, and in uh, problem cannabis uh, uh, use, and and at, which is a sort of a an indicator that we use on surveys to for uh, uh, cannabis use disorder. And all of those have increased uh, uh, since legalization. Um, the big change is uh, really among um, uh, the, the daily use and the uh, and the indi- and problematic cannabis use. Uh, daily use, for instance, before uh, legalization in Ontario was one percent, and that went up six times after legalization. And we saw uh, similar increases among for problematic cannabis use among users. Wow, that's, that's a big change. All right, we will talk to you uh, a few more times during uh, the first 90 minutes of the program. Michael, thank you. Thanks. Michael Chaitin, a senior scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health and an associate professor with the University of Toronto's Dalla Lana School of Public Health. A little later in the show, we're going to find out more on cannabis-related crime since legalization. Criminologist Neil Boyd will be uh, speaking with us. And our question on the program today, what impact has the legalization of cannabis had on you, your family, or your community? You can call us at 1-888-416-8333 or go to cbc.ca slash aircheck, which I think... Our next caller did. Uh, We're going to call her Tessa. She is in Ottawa, but we're not using her name because she's concerned about the impact uh, what she's going to tell us about may have on her job, the stigma in her workplace. As I say, we'll we'll call you Tessa for this call. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you very much for connecting with us via cbc.ca slash aircheck. And, um, and, And what impact did legalization have on you? Relief. Hmm. Joy, relief. <laughs> in what way? In that um, if someone wanted to um, acquire some uh, from um, a legal supplier, they could do so. Also, um, people who had, uh, I know one individual who um, years ago had been arrested for possession of um, 
cannabis, marijuana, and that affected his ability to travel to the states. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I don't know how far they've gotten with clearing people's records with that, but I'm sure that's a big relief for a lot of people who just for possession, they had a criminal record. It just seems so extreme and so unfair, like mm-hmm. your expert was mentioning earlier. Um, yeah, but for myself, um, not that I was a user, um, but once it became legal and once I felt comfortable with um, acquiring some and only using it within my home, mm-hmm. I'm not a smoker. I would rather bake something or do edibles in a controlled environment. And uh, especially during COVID with the anxieties uh, and the stress of what was going on, it helped me get through some very strange times with lockdowns and um, the news about the social discord and people, you know, against vaccinations and travel bans. Mm -hmm. It just helped me, it just helped um, me mellow out as well as be creative and do some housework. It was very helpful. And so you bought the cannabis at a, what, a government-regulated store? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what was that whole experience like, going in there and buying it? I, I, I walk by these stores. I haven't been inside them. What was your experience? Oh, it was pretty straightforward. Um, mm-hmm. Going into those places, uh, like going into an Apple store, <laughs> because <laughs> of, uh, you know, the, the display and, and uh, the descriptions and the menu on the big screens and mm-hmm. the very helpful staff. Of course, they're not able to give advice, but they're able to describe products and tell you where to go to get advice. For example, mm-hmm. if you wanted to make cannabis butter or if you wanted to do what else, they give you a website you could go to and, and follow instructions there. So if... Yeah, I, I was not nervous. Uh, you know, yeah. it was pretty relaxing. It was yeah. not, you know, looking over your shoulder mm-hmm. and worried about who, who would see you. Well, whoever would see you was also in the store. Yeah. So there you go. I love the comparison to the Apple store because the few cannabis stores I, I walk by near the CBC here in Vancouver, that's exactly what they look like. You know, like gleaming counters and just everything looks so um, kind of pleasantly sterile, right? It's just uh, very interesting. Um, Tessa, the if if cannabis hadn't been legalized, and we still would have had the pandemic. You still would have been trying to cope with the anxiety of it. Um, what would you have done, do you think? Um, well, I do have family who are able to supply, if need be. I, mm-hmm. may, have, I may have just uh, turned to family for a source, mm-hmm. if I wanted to. That, that's a good question, you know. Um, I don't know. Um, I would I have turned to drinking instead? Probably not, because I don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But um, I may have I may have turned to family to ask if they had a supply and take it from there. Yeah. Anyway, it sounds like it's it's uh, it's worked well for you. Legalization, and you've been able to get access to what you want and been able to use it not only in a way that doesn't have a negative impact on your life, but actually has a po- has had a positive impact on your life. Yes. Yes, and and um, I feel for the woman that you were speaking with earlier and her son, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it also depends on individuals, right? Um, 
there individuals may have more of an addictive uh, tendency than others mm-hmm. towards whether it's alcohol, drugs, sex, whatever. Um, if you have an addictive personality, then you may become victim to addiction with yeah. cannabis. But I, yeah. I haven't really heard a lot of other people I know being addicted to cannabis. All right. Well, we're calling you Tessa because we know you don't want to use your real name because you're concerned about the impact uh, your candor may have on your job. So, Tessa, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Ian. What impact has legalization of pot had on you, your family, or your community five years and a few days, I guess, uh, after legalization in Canada, the anniversary, I think, on Tuesday, just a few days ago? Let's go to Hamilton, Ontario. Jackie Gallagher is calling us. Hi, Jackie. Hi. I see in the notes here you feel that legal cannabis has had a positive impact on you as well. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So um, I didn't really start smoking until I was 39, and Mm -hmm. I'm almost 49 now. Um, Smoked a couple of times when I was a teenager and did not like it, did not like the way it felt felt at all. Um, So I just never really used. Now, when I was 39, I started going through a lot of health problems. I struggled from uh, with a lot of chronic pain and uh, took a long time for doctors to figure out what was wrong with me. And uh, so it, you know, just so happened uh, that uh, some cannabis became available to me and I was kind of like, uh, I don't know. And it was supposed to be like, oh, I'll just, you know, smoke it, go watch some TV or whatever. And it, and it was the first time in a year that my pain went away. Hmm. It just like literally after one draw, it was like, wow, that, that severe stomach pain that I had was gone. And so um, when it became legal for me, I felt a lot safer because before you were just kind of getting it from wherever you could get it. There was, you know, um, little shops that popped up here and there that were selling it and it wasn't really legal, but they, they weren't educated and you didn't really know what you were getting. And I, I spent a lot of money trying to find different strains that were helpful and did not, you know, make me wig out or what they call green out because it's, mm-hmm. you know, too much THC. And I did, I don't like being like super stone. I just mm-hmm. did not want to be suffering from chronic pain. So and I so don't how- use it every day. Oh, I, I was just—I was just going to ask you that: is how often you do use it? Yeah, so I—I I really only use it um, when my anxiety is really severe um, or my pain is really severe, and I have the option for um, other prescription drugs that I have, but I don't like taking those either because I don't like the effects that on my heart and my liver, and I, and I have heart disease and 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 so forth. So you really, I really don't like taking stronger medications. Um, and I do actually have a history of addiction um, mm-hmm. from in my 20s. And marijuana never uh, makes me feel addicted. Um, I'm, I'm very mindful of my usage. I'm very mindful with my prescription medications. I don't like opioids at all. Um, so, and occasionally I will use it uh, you know, like uh, one of your previous callers said, you know, just chill out, just relax. You've had a, a really rough, stressful day. You're really anxious. You know, we talked about the pandemic and there's, there was a sense of loneliness there. I think the whole world felt that they didn't even know existed mm-hmm. until the pandemic. Yeah. And 
So it's a, it's a good thing. Now, and, and I think, you know, but it needs to be, um, it's responsibility. Like with any medication, it's responsibility like with alcohol. Alcohol yeah. is legal. And, but when they promote alcohol, they always tell you, you know, use responsibly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people need to be educated on being responsible with using cannabis. Yep. Um, I, I had a family member who used all the time. Um, she wasn't addicted. It's just that was the state she wanted to remain in to mm-hmm. cope with life. Um, went to rehab and it wasn't to detox. She didn't have withdrawals. What she needed was therapy to get behind the reason why she wasn't wanting to cope with life. Yeah. Um, all, all no. very interesting and and uh, and complex and uh, and as always, I, I with so many callers and you for sure, I appreciate your candor. I'm learning a lot listening to you. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you for having me. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. We are live in Vancouver on CBC Radio and CBC News Network and many other CBC platforms, including CBC Explore, the uh, online channel. Our question this week, what impact has the legalization of pot had on you, your family, or your community? And with us throughout this portion of the program is Michael Chayton, a senior scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. And and Michael, a couple of questions for you. First of all, uh, we're hearing different views on the link between cannabis legalization and addiction. Uh, A mother talking about her son who started using a lot of cannabis every day. The woman you just heard who uses it regularly for pain relief, uh, but uh, feels very, you know, comfortable with it and is not addicted. Uh, Tell us about, like, I assume there's some people more susceptible to addiction uh, to cannabis than others. I, I think there certainly are. So not everyone who, who smokes cannabis is addicted. Um, and th- there are, though, I think, a, a strain of argument uh, that uh, a myth, really, that, that, that cannabis is not addictive at all. Um, as people were arguing for legalization, I think there was a lot of hyperbole about how safe it was, how effective it was as a medication. Um, and I, those pieces about the sort of the, some of the, the, uh, benefits of, of cannabis and also some of the downsides that got neglected, like addiction, um, are really coming into the, the fore here. So cannabis uh, is is addictive for some people. Again, not everyone has the different stories to tell. Everyone has their own experience. Uh, people uh, do react differently. Um, but we, we know that there are people struggling with cannabis use. Um, even before the pandemic, Ontario saw uh, 30,000 people uh, enter inpatient facilities uh, covered by OHIP, um, uh, the, the government uh, for for cannabis dependence. And, and that number is, is going up. You know, I, I think at least in British Columbia, um, I am inundated with ads for alcohol, for sure, um, mm-hmm. and, and online gambling. Um, and, and I often wonder to what extent that draws people into drinking and gambling who then have problems with it. Um, we don't see that advertising for cannabis. And I wonder if that has maybe made it a little bit more difficult or, or at least been, you know, sort of reduced the number of people who become problem users since legalization. The fact that we don't advertise cannabis the way we do gambling and alcohol and lotteries for that matter. 
Absolutely. I, I think that the legalization of cannabis, we got many things right, um, or at least uh, in the right direction, uh, that we learned from alcohol and gambling and tobacco that uh, advertising and promotion um, really does lead to problem use and high levels of use, uh, particularly amongst youth. And so we were able to limit some of that advertising, um, limit the packaging available for, for marijuana. Package is a really important way of communicating uh, uh, messages, again, particularly to youth and new users. Um, and even the stores that uh, uh, limiting access uh, sort of behind, uh, you know, in, in Ontario, for instance, you you can't see inside a store. Uh, you, you have to go enter into it to, to, to see the product and it's not openly available shelves unless you're uh, legally of age. And so those, uh, I think, regulations have had a difference. The problem is that it what we still have with it with cannabis is a cannabis industry and industry uh for the alcohol whether it's alcohol or gambling or tobacco um in order to make profits uh they really rely on the dependent uh addicted user um for the there's a rule of thumb that for uh substances uh, the sales about uh, that 80% of your of use comes from about 20% of your users, that most people don't use it very much. And your profits come from the people who use it a lot. And that's driving, I think, companies uh, to be able to push the that high levels of use, the problematic use, um, in order to uh, uh, make their profit. Hmm. Really interesting, uh, Michael. Michael Chaitin, a senior scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health, and we will come back to you later on in the program. Our topic this week on cross-country checkup, what impact has legalization of cannabis had on you, your family, or your community? You can reach us at 1-888-416-8333. Perhaps you want to text us your comment. That you can do at 226-758-8924. Let me give you that text number one more time, 226 758 8924. Our next caller is in Woodstock, Ontario, and like a couple of callers before, and it'll become very evident why uh, he does not want us to use his real name. So I'll call you Phil for the purpose of uh, of the conversation. And uh, first of all, welcome to the program, Phil. Hi, Ian. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thank you for calling in. So, so tell us the impact that legalization has had on your family. Uh, so my son was in his uh, final year of high school, um, and him and his friends were were smoking a lot of weed and and uh, using edibles, and they were mega dosing. So, kind of like in a competition of who could who could take the highest milligram content of uh, of cannabis. And what what it ended up doing was it was tri- it triggered a, a, a schizophrenic. Uh, uh, cannabis-induced schizophrenia, uh, and then he started um, having this alternate reality happening in his life. He uh, he he imagined that I told him that my father had uh, molested me as a child, and he was really had become very angry with my father, hmm. and so angry that he was uh, he, he wanted to kill my father. So, I mean, uh, it. it and this was was all was all in his mind. This was 
it, not a shred of reality was happening, but in his mind, it was completely real. Hmm. And what ended up happening was we, we took him to the hospital and they admitted him for a uh, 72-hour uh, psychiatric evaluation. And then he was in, he ended up being put on antipsychotic drugs for several months after that. So it was terrifying as a father, you can understand. Oh, yeah, I, absolutely. Now, what did the doctors tell you about the correlation between his cannabis use and these uh, psychotic uh, episodes? Well, they, they they said to us that it was uh, that it happens more often than you would think, and you know, uh, uh, growing up. Uh, I used to to use marijuana, not regularly. It, it gave me paranoia, so I, I never really, um, I, I wasn't a heavy user, but I wasn't uptight about it either. I just, you know, it, it affected me in a way I didn't like, so I just didn't didn't use it. Mm-hmm. So um, when I heard that, when I knew he was using weed, I didn't really care because it was legal and and you know, it, it's what kids do. You know, but then when when he got sick from it, and then I started learning more about it, I, I, it's a, it's a thing it, that it, it triggers schizophrenia, and and apparently I read in a in an article recently that uh, cannabis induced schizophrenia is up, it's doubled from one percent of the population to two percent of user population. How's your son doing now? Uh, he's he's doing. Uh, remarkable. We were we were really cautious about his mental health and what because uh, at that age, between high school and university, you know, a lot of things can happen. A lot of a lot of uh, twists in the road can happen, mm-hmm. and you know, you always hope for the best. So he's uh, he's uh, in his last year of his undergrad, and he has a path forward to um, going to do his masters and. He has a great girlfriend and he's got a career, like he's got a a career lined up to do. And, um, you know, that was just a moment in time, but it was terrifying. I got to tell you. Oh, yeah. But anyway, terrific um, twist, you know, in that story back to where he is now. And and, and Phil, as we are going to call you for the purposes of this call, um, you know, for people who are listening, either young people in their late teens, early 20s, or their parents? What's your message for them? Well, I, the, the, what we can take from that is, um, you know, I, I like the fact that it cannabis has been decriminalized. I understand the benefits to that. Um, I understand the benefits to some people where it relaxes them, gives them sleep, but we need to know that it it can also unlock things in our mind that are, that could be lurking in the dark corners of our mind. You know, we need to be aware of, of, of the potential of this drug. You know, and and I learned after the fact that it's not just a recreational drug; that it's it's a pretty powerful drug. And if it's used inappropriately or it's used by the wrong person, that that you know, the trajectory of your life could actually be changed. What a thoughtful, insightful story, Phil. Thank you so much for calling us. Thank you. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. Well, speaking of decriminalization, let's talk to somebody who has studied uh, 
criminology for a long time. Neil Boyd, a professor emeritus of criminology from Simon Fraser University here in British Columbia. And uh, he can give us an update on cannabis-related crime five years after legalization. And he is in beautiful Bowen Island, British Columbia. Hi, Neil. Hi, Ian. So since legalization in 2018, what can you tell us about the impact on, on cannabis-related crime and, and arrests? Well, cannabis crime has dropped dramatically, as one would expect. Uh, the licit market has gradually overtaken the illicit market. Uh, the number of charges that we see are down considerably. Um, and those are, those are steps forward, certainly. We had heard many stories uh, in Canada and the United States, let's focus on Canada now, that certain communities were disproportionately affected by cannabis-related arrests over the years and that sometimes police officers could use possession of marijuana as a pretext to pull somebody off the street and uh, and charge them if uh, there were there was not evidence of other things that were going on and so the feeling was marginalized communities were getting disproportionately affected um is was that accurate and has that changed well to some extent it's accurate in that they could use a charge of possession of cannabis uh, to further an investigation to, into other kinds of crimes. And today, um, we still have uh, some people who are disadvantaged as a consequence of, uh, of cannabis legalization. Um, there was an attempt by the government to uh, create pardons, but of the 20, 250,000 people who have cannabis convictions, only 500 Canadians have applied for pardons. So rather than the approach taken in many American jurisdictions where they're simply wiped out and some of those disadvantages disappear, we haven't taken that approach in Canada. And uh, that creates difficulties in terms of travel for people who still have criminal records. And, and of course, the people who don't apply uh, to have the record removed, don't apply for a record suspension, as it's now called, um, they tend to be a disadvantaged population. From your perspective, Neil, as a criminologist, is there anything stands out to you that Canada got right or wrong, uh, notably when it came to legalization? Well, I think the focus on young people uh, was a positive one, and you know the data that we have suggests that uh, adolescents are not using to a greater extent. I think we have to recognize that cannabis has been around for a long time, since the 1970s. A majority of Canadian high school students have indicated that at one time or another they have used. So this isn't a, you know, and, and we've seen actually decreasing uh, enforcement prior to legalization. So there was a, a gradual recognition and then this burst of legalization. A gradual recognition, that is, of, of, of change, of the fact that this drug is not as dangerous as alcohol or tobacco, doesn't have the morbidity associated with those drugs. Um, and, and the liberals, uh, to their credit, decided to, to take this step. Um, it, it, it's far from perfect um, in, in terms of the disadvantaged population, but I guess what I'd say is that you know, we've got less than 10% per capita rate of charging. So even those disadvantaged populations are better off than they were prior to legalization. One last question, Neil. Uh, we were told, the hope was five years ago, that this would take a huge bite out of organized crime, that a big money-making uh, business for them would be uh, taken away. Uh, how do things look five years later? 
Well, there's still organized crime. You know, if, uh, we did a project for Public Safety Canada, and, and there are concerns. One of the concerns is illicit online sales. But as we know from not, not only cannabis, but any other form of criminality, online uh, crime is a, is a problem that requires a uh, very significant resources and very difficult to control. But I guess the good news here, and, and there is more good news than bad, is that we've moved away from the illicit market to the illicit market, that is cannabis consumers. It's still, you know, not as popular a, a, a drug as, as alcohol or tobacco and, uh, and, and probably um, will never be. Uh, I mean, some of these things are cultural, but some of these just... Uh, are about personal preferences. And uh, we've got 80% of Canadians using alcohol, 20 to 25% using cannabis. Um, and that's you know, just not a, a surprising um, development as a mm -hmm. consequence of legalization. That is to say, there hasn't been a dramatic change. I have interviewed you, Neil, on so many different topics over the last 30 or so years uh, and uh, appreciate that and appreciate you speaking with us this afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. Neil Boyd, Professor Emeritus of Criminology at Simon Fraser University, and he spoke to us from Bowen Island, British Columbia. Coming up, whatever happened to the so-called green rush? You may remember that legal weed uh, also was supposed to come with a huge economic opportunity. So we'll talk to somebody who is studying that and can tell us what actually happened. Our question today, what impact has the legalization of cannabis had on you, your family, or your community? And our phone number is 888-416-8333. You can also reach us by going to cbc.ca slash aircheck. All right, let's take a look at some of the comments that we've received online. Uh, Sherry Birch from Toronto contacted Aircheck and said, after my first knee replacement surgery, I realized I was allergic to prescription painkillers like oxycodone. Uh, so for my second knee replacement, I took cannabis and my recovery was much improved. No problems, nor side effects, and returned to work six weeks later. Ken Schnell texted us, cannabis in the form of edibles has helped with my insomnia in a way that pharmaceuticals never have, no irritating side effects. Our text number, by the way, 226-758-8924. Janice also texted us, there are many of us whose kids self-medicate with large daily amounts of cannabis. The increase in anxiety, depression, emotional dysregulation, and dysfunctional executive functioning skills is overwhelming. Our kids start using young and just increase their usage as they age. Jillian Krantz texted us. She says, hi, I see the consumption of alcohol is going down in Canada, especially among younger people. Is this one positive result of cannabis use? And Cindy Murray also texting said, legalized marijuana has changed my life because of menopause and hot flashes. I had little sleep for 15 years. After about six months of trying different oils, I found one that decreased hot flashes. And finally, I'm getting half decent sleeps. That text number, 226-758-8924. Our phone number, 1-888-416-8333. And um, our next caller is from here in Vancouver, Deborah Bodner. Hi, Deborah. Hi. Uh, tell us about uh, the impact legalization has had on you. Uh, yeah, well, um, I am retired now, mm -hmm. but uh, back in the 70s, I was living in Gastown. I'm, a, I'm not originally from Vancouver, so <coughs> I 
I was a hippie in Gastown. I was going to say, Gastown, did you say in the 70s? That must have been quite a place. Oh, it was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so anyways, I was charged. I was caught with some, some pot. And uh, it was less than an ounce. I, um, I went to court. I paid a $25 fine. And I was fingerprinted. Now, you know, flash forward 20 years, 25 years later, not even thinking about it, and uh, was crossing into the States one time, and they always ask you, you know, do you have a criminal record or anything like that, which I don't, Um, and he asked me, have you ever been fingerprinted? And I went, yeah, actually I was, (laughs) it was, you know, and so I was refused entry. So over the years, I work in the travel industry, so what I've had to do is apply every year, and it was um, a letter to Ottawa, a letter from my doctor, a letter from my manager at work, Hmm. and a letter from me stating the circumstances. So here we were in like the 90s, and... I'm, I still had to apply every year for one of these forms. It was over $500. Hmm. And because I worked in travel, I had to have it. So, again, over the years, I, um, I figured out that, you know, if I want to go anywhere, I can go through Europe or through Asia. So it has had a huge, huge impact on my life. I'm a major traveler. I've been to probably 25, 30 different countries and never had that problem except in the U.S. So it has had, like I said, for the small amount that I was charged with, it has really, really affected my life. <laughs> yeah. Now now that it's legal, mm-hmm. I've got to say it is so much easier uh, firstly, you don't have to go to the dodgy areas with cash. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, I started to go into some of the stores that were popping up around here. And, uh, and now I go online, I order it, I pay through Interact, and it comes to my door within two or three days. Mm. I bet you the 20-year-old version of you, the hippie in Gastown in the 70s, could never have imagined what it would be like in 2023. Oh, no kidding. And I've always been a real advocate for, well, I mean, my father was an alcoholic, and I've always said, you know, if there is an option between alcohol and marijuana, I'm going with the marijuana. Mm -hmm. Because I've seen how alcohol can affect families, and, you know, and I find that marijuana used properly like anything else you know everybody says about kids overdosing on marijuana it's like well then you're doing too much you know Mm -hmm. you can overdose on anything if you do too much yeah if you have a beer with your friends or smoke a joint with your friends as opposed to you know having a case of beer (laughs) with your friends it's it's all in moderation but i think the legalization has made a huge difference has allowed so many, you know, just simple people that want to smoke a joint once in a while, and we don't have to be criminals anymore. 
It's a really good reminder of what it used to be like and the fact that, you know, your penalty when you were arrested and I guess convicted, quote unquote, of having that small bit of weed was $25, right? Like that's even the legal system of the day obviously didn't see that as being too serious. And yet it had lifetime consequences for you prior to legalization. So a really good, really good reminder, Deborah. And thank you very much for calling. Oh, oh, and I just want to mention, um, it actually wasn't even mine. That's the thing. I was with my sure, boyfriend. That's your, and he that's was your, that's your story, Deborah. Yes, that was not mine. I'm just holding for my boyfriend. No, no, seriously. <laughs> it's my boyfriend. He had it, and, uh, and I wasn't smoking at the time, and, uh, but he had like it in two packets. So hmm. when we were charged, he, the, the officer said to me, your boyfriend will be charged with um, trafficking. Hmm. Oh, because yeah. it was in two packets. Right. So if you take one and he takes the other one, it'll just be possession. Wow. Yep. Or and alternatively, he could just let you go. But I guess back then they weren't going to do that. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, they would just come through the area and just check everybody. And, yep. you know, and yeah. So... Yeah, actually, it wasn't mine. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm still smoking now, so <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we really love the fact that you call. Thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Well, let's go to Edmonton now. Natalia Whitson is calling. Hi, Natalia. Hi there. Uh, tell us about the, the, the impact that legalization of cannabis has had on you. Uh, I guess uh, I am, my family and I, and many, many other people that we associate with, we know, the neighbors, friends, we are on the um, other side of the fence of this, I guess. Uh, Personally, we have been affected in a negative way Mm -hmm. by um, legalization of marijuana, in the way, um, to give you an example, uh, we had to uh, sell our property that um, suffered greatly from a smoke of marijuana. Hmm. As uh, uh, there was a neighbor underneath our condo that um, was constantly him and his mother were constantly smoking inside, and all the smoke and smell was going through. Um, they had inspectors that come in and he found that everything was going through the small cracks where there's around the piping in the bathroom and around the dryer vents in the, uh, in the dry, in the uh, laundry room. So everywhere. And it was all after we did the nice renovations and everything. And it was just being, all of this is just being destroyed. And there's so little we can do about it because you know, it's almost like, it's it's also disrespectful, I'm going to mention when I'm asking people who do smoke marijuana, uh, mm-hmm. something a little bit later. But at this point, so legally, it's either we start a big civil, um, uh, go to court and spend a lot of money on top of everything that we already are suffering from all of this. It's just, it was just too much. So we had to, uh, we had to sell it and... Uh, lose money on it mm. and everything else. And of course, it was very sad to us. You know, and then also living, uh, for example, living in a house. And <laughs> if you have a neighbor who is smoking pot uh, right behind your fence, so we, we just, it just, the smell is so strong. It's not alcohol like you, and you're going to be back enjoying your wine, a glass of wine. Uh, um, it's not going to affect your neighbor uh, or neighbor's children mm-hmm. or 
if you in regular cigarettes they don't they're not as strong and they don't travel as far. Um, so with marijuana, it's completely different. We have to close our window and just kind of wait until this person stops and join. You know, they're they join over there behind the fence. Mm-hmm. They have to show our kids like just move from there. Just don't inhale that. Yeah. So what I want to say since I have this opportunity on the air, to everybody who um, enjoys uh, smoking pot for whatever your reason is, um, medical reason, uh, social reason, uh, or any other reasons that you have, please be aware of, of people on the other, behind the other side of the fence like mm-hmm. us. So we have children, we have families that might gather together on Saturday evening. How is that affecting us, this strong smell that you have to inhale. You have to pack up and go inside and held hostage on a sunny, beautiful day of short Albertan summer. Mm-hmm. Literally the Please, people on the other side of the fence. It. Yes. Yeah. It's just, you feel like, it's almost like, hey, it's legal now, suck it all up. Yeah. Why uh, do we have to? I mean, let's be all respectful of one another. Yeah. You know what, Natalia, that, that is a really good point, and it's a very practical point. We've talked about, like, when you think about all the calls up until this point, uh, we haven't touched on this kind of practicality of just uh, what you find is intrusive and offensive uh, in terms of uh, of the smoke. And I'm, I'm sorry, obviously, that you had to sell a property because it was uh, too bad. Natalia, thank you very much for calling us. You're welcome. We're about to take our break on uh, CBC News Network, but just before we do, let me bring Michael uh, Chayton back in, Senior Scientist for the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. And Michael, we only have, actually we only have about 30 seconds, so um, I just want to ask you in, in, with a quick answer about the correlation between, have you seen anything in terms of hospital visits related to cannabis increasing or changing since legalization? Yes, I mean, we've seen uh, increases in uh, emergency room visits, in uh, traffic injuries, in um, uh, hypermimesis w- uh, syndrome, which is like vo- vomiting, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, cannabis use uh, induced psychosis, as, as I think Phil mentioned earlier. Okay. All of these increased, but really since uh, not legalization. But since commercialization. Okay, uh, let me uh, let me uh, jump uh, in. I'll let you finish that thought in just a second, but I need to say goodbye to our TV yeah. viewers on CBC News Network. Our program continues on CBC Radio. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And you're listening to Hour 2 of Cross Country Checkup. We are live on CBC Radio. We have roughly 30 minutes left on our main topic. And coming up on our Ask Me Anything segment, we're turning our focus again to the war unfolding in the Middle East. We're going to be joined by two experts with two different perspectives on the conflict. Scott Clancy, a retired Major General with the Canadian Armed Forces. John Allen, a former Canadian Ambassador to Israel. You can start calling now with your AMA questions on the Israel-Hamas war. Our number is one 888 
416-833-4168333. Our text number is 226-758-8924. But until then, until the bottom of the hour, we continue to field your questions and talk to the experts on a different topic. What impact has the legalization of cannabis had on you, your family, or your community? And just before our television break there, we were talking to Michael Chayton. And, and Michael, I asked you with only 30 seconds to answer um, about uh, the link between legalization and uh, and increase hospital visits or other medical issues. And just as I interrupted you, you talked about a distinction between legalization and commercialization. Just explain that for us. So what we've seen um, in the work of a number of different scientists, uh, particularly um, I want to mention Daniel Myron in Ottawa and Russell Callahan in, out of BC, um, and we've seen a pretty consistent story that uh, for some, uh, that we might have seen a little bit of a bump uh, associated with the increase in legalization. Uh, but for things like ED visits, after that little bump, we actually started to see decreases uh, during the period in which cannabis was uh, legal, available, um, but pretty heavily regulated. Um, provinces then started to uh, deregulate uh, in various ways and allow for more cannabis stores, uh, more ways of, of getting cannabis to consumers, different types of products uh, being available on the shelves. Uh, and when we saw those, and particularly the, the number of stores start to increase, we also saw those, then we started to see big increases in things like traffic injuries, uh, psychosis, um, uh, and, and hospitalizations in general. I know you're not a physician, you are a scientist, um, and so you tell me if this is a question you can answer or not, but we've already heard from at least a couple of callers about what they say, and I think doctors have told them, is a correlation between uh, heavy marijuana use by their sons in both cases, in their late teens, early 20s, and then uh, the development of, or, or at least having psychotic uh, incidents. Um, is, is that a, a correlation that, that we do see? Yes. I, I mean, I think the, the research has shown and there are a number of really good uh, uh, systematic reviews that have come out recently that uh, uh, look at an overview at uh, uh, all of the studies that have been out in the literature. Um, and they're pretty consistent in showing that um, uh, schizophrenia in particular has been strongly linked to, uh, to cannabis use, particularly in youth and young adults. Um, there was a study in Ontario uh, that showed that those people who came in uh, to the emergency room with uh, cannabis-induced psychosis, uh, that uh, uh, ne nearly 20% later went on to get uh, schizophrenia, which is a really high number. And among uh, young men in particular, that number rose to 40%. Uh, so schizophrenia is still a very uh, pretty uncommon, but it is a very serious consequence and it looks to be strongly associated with cannabis, along with other sort of mood disorders, things like uh, depression and anxiety, things that people actually or that are that are trying to treat with with cannabis, but do seem to be uh, made uh, seem to be on average made worse by cannabis use. All right, uh, Michael, we so appreciate your expertise on this topic, and we will come back to you before we uh, end this portion of the program. Michael Chayton is a senior scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. All right, back to the phone lines, 1-888-416-8333. Anita Jameson 
is here in Vancouver. And Anita, the last caller we had was also from Vancouver. Or no, actually, that's not true. She was from Alberta and she talked about uh, the, the smell of marijuana. It was a little different than some of the calls we had up until now. And you too, Anita, have kind of a different perspective on this issue. Uh, w- what impact have you seen since legalization? Well, I'm, 10 years ago, I, I owned dogs for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And then I had a hiatus and just got one when COVID started. And un, uh, unfortunately, the dog, my dog is a retriever mix that can smell a, a dropped lunch bag eight houses down from my house. <laughs> they have a very acute smell. Yeah. And the smell, uh, when one smokes a, 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 a marijuana and they drop their butt, or I don't know what you call it, on the ground, mm-hmm. it's a sweet smell and the dog is attracted to it. So what happens is they get very, very ill. They, their head starts to bobble, and they can hardly walk, and they become uh, incontinent. And it, often you have to take the dog into uh, the 24-hour emergency pet hmm. uh, place. Well, they'll say, oh, yeah, you're the eighth one today, wow. tonight we've had. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, And a lot of this happens in the bush. Uh, I live in the North Shore Mountains, so you go into the forest and people like to have a smoke in the forest. So it's either that or construction sites. I have to be very, very careful with my dog. That so, so these are people who are, these are people, sorry to interrupt, but these are people yeah. who are smoking a joint and then it's kind of the, the, the joint equivalent of the butt that they're just discarding? That's right. It's yeah. not, yes. Yes. It's, it's very hard on dogs. They can't tolerate it. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the other issue is, I got to say, I, should I even get into this? Oh, I will. Um, walking around, seeing people who smoke a cigarette and then throw the butt on the sidewalk, I, I still I, I can't get over that. It seems so yeah. odd. So maybe one of the lessons here is whether you're smoking tobacco or cannabis, just don't, like, keep your <laughs> keep your butt, keep whatever the <laughs> remainder is of the joint and, and throw it away and, and avoid it. So, so I'm, you know, that, that is an interesting angle. I hadn't thought about that. Um, the dog part of it aside, which is, uh, you know, a serious consequence, um, as somebody in Vancouver, a city where there was a lot of open cannabis use before official legalization, um, yeah. how do you feel things have changed in the city since official legalization? Well, I think people smoke more yeah. in, in the forest than they used to. They, mm. they'll, they'll sit on a nice rock and look out on the view and have their smoke. And I, I, <laughs> yeah, it just blows me that, you know, that they do this. But yes, I see it more commonly than I used to. Yeah. All right. Anita, thank you very much for calling. And uh, people listening, think about the dogs and the health of the dogs. And Thank uh, you, everyone in Canada, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's a good okay. reminder. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. What impact has the legalization of pot had on you? That is the question we have here on Cross Country Checkup. Let's go to uh, Mike Bartlett, who is in Saskatoon. Hi, Mike. Well, good sweater. Hey, how's it going, Ian? Good. Thanks for calling. I, I see here in the notes that you've been a cannabis user for, for 30 years, so that obviously predates legalization. Uh, what, impact, what impact do you think legalization has had either on you or, or your family or your community? Uh, well, I've seen it in a lot of different ways. Um, I, I, as I mentioned, I've been a cannabis user for quite a number of years. I started in my, my very early teens, and, and, um, and I've used it my whole life. Uh, in 2016, I got crushed by a semi in, a, in, a, in an accident, and, mm. um, and that was all I used for pain management. Still it is. And, uh, 
but it, it put me on a change in careers and it took me out of the industry I was in and, and it put me off work for a few years where I recovered and, and I decided to find my way in the cannabis industry and we opened up a grow store in Saskatoon that uh, that originally catered to to the cannabis um, cannabis growers, medical mm-hmm. growers and, and stuff. One of the things that we I found when, when I had had my accident uh, just before legalization, um, it was very hard to find information, whether it was from the medical community or just places within the city that had uh, had a cannabis community that could provide information on just how do I use cannabis more efficiently and more effectively and safely um, as a medicine. And, uh, and, and being the way that the system is, th- that wasn't available. And, and so one of the biggest things that we've noticed uh, impacts in the community is that it allowed us to be able to provide information to people looking for a source to how do I do this? Well, you know, you know, what do you do, Mike? How do you manage your pain using can- only cannabis with, with such severe injuries? And, um, and we couldn't do that before. So mm-hmm. the, the, the amount of information and uh, the open air talk and conversation of cannabis is, is allowed um, to spread a better information. And, and, and what, I'm sorry, go ahead. To be gained. Yeah. And, and, sorry, and just better knowledge to be gained through research. And what is it about cannabis that, and we've heard this from some other callers as well, that, that they have found pain relief through cannabis that they didn't find using other, I guess, drugs. Um, what is it about can- cannabis that was the right fit for you? Uh, well, I'd used it for so many years. I knew I knew that it had an efficacy for pain management, and 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 through that, I also started to educate myself on the plant and and the cannabinoids and the chemicals in the plant, and their importance and the role within our endocannabinoid system in the body. So, so our our body has a system, and the cannabinoids are designed to work within that system. THC works with the nervous system, and so it helps it helps change the way that the brain processes those pain signals and. Uh, so we we still can process and feel pain. Um, I could go out and work in the garden, um, but as soon as I started to hit a point that my body goes, whoa, 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 you could hurt yourself here. I can I, my body gets the pain mes- message, but with opioids it just blocks it. You can you can garden with a broken arm. Mm. And so I wanted to be able to function. I didn't want to get into a position where I was on heavy opioids that I, I didn't like the idea of it. And mm-hmm. so I stuck with what I knew worked. And, and it took me a year or so before I really fully understood how to use cannabis efficiently and effectively as, as a medicine so that I wasn't over-medicating. Because mm-hmm. it, it, it does happen. I, we, that's one of the things that I find with a lot of people that are trying to use it, that have used it for a lot of years, is, is they over-medicate. And, mm-hmm. and it does cause issues in, in, in life other ways. Okay. Mike, thank you for calling. You're welcome. Uh, let's go to Bella Bella, British Columbia. And uh, Gunas, Moondance Bone Collector, is, is calling. Hi. Hey, thank you for taking my call. How are you? Good. I'm really good. Thank you for calling. So tell me about the impact legalization of cannabis has had uh, on you. Well, let me, I'll say what it's had on me and my community. Uh, for myself personally, I um. I've been a long-time user of marijuana. I was using it back in, in an early diagnosis of HIV about 35 years ago, and I've been using it consistently ever since. And um, uh, and was part of the original, you know, helping to get it legalized for people that were, were able to legally possess cannabis as, as an ill person. Uh, but it's nice to now be able to travel with marijuana and not be risked of getting, you know, uh, embarrassed in front of everybody for traveling with marijuana, which happened with the early marijuana that we could buy legally. Anyway, I was recently in a coma for five weeks, followed mm. by 
several a month and a half, I believe, of rehabilitation, and I was in agonizing pain the whole entire time. I had never used marijuana as a pain medication. And when I finally got to my home, was discharged and got to my home, I got an edible marijuana um, jelly. And within 20 minutes, I was completely 100% pain-free. I mm. cried. I never cry. I cried because it felt so good to be out of pain. Um, in my community here, not just my community here where I live right now, but I've lived in other communities over the past 30 years as well, there's an uptick in elders and senior citizens that are using edible marijuana products to promote mobility, to promote a better eating pattern, to promote better sleep. They say they're happier. They enjoy guests. I've been working on long-term care wards with people. My uncle, who has Parkinson's disease, he hasn't opened up his hands in like 10 years and shaking consistently. We had him on CBD oil under, you know, I, I did it with the under the supervision of the doctors and the nurses at the hospital and said with my uncle the whole time. But within three days, his hands opened up and he, he stopped shaking. And uh, it was absolutely amazing to see. Hmm. So I know that there certainly are, you know, these wonderful, wonderful benefits that can be had. And uh, as far as negative ones, of course, there's going to be negative side effects to anything that, that, that we put a study to. You know, mm-hmm. we've got these rises in numbers going on all over the place. They've never conducted studies into these numbers before. In, in studies in, studies into work. studies into what numbers, Gunas? Well, young people that, you know, the rise in young people, the rise in psychosis diagnoses. No, but, uh, yeah. um, I, work, I work as a consultant and an advisor to the Canadian government specific to one. This is one of the specific topics that I deal with is addiction. And uh, it's when I was younger and using marijuana, nobody ever came up to me and said, are you using marijuana? What are you using it for? These these um, studies are just beginning now, which is why we're seeing all these dramatic rises in number. They're not rises in number. You're just getting caught up to the general community of people in Canada that smoke marijuana. And it does happen all the time. Uh, it has been going on my whole entire life. And I tell you, the, the people that I've known lifelong who smoke marijuana are calm, cool, collected, still married, happy, <laughs> good grandparents. You know, I'm telling right. you, it, there's something about it that... Um, even I've spoken with, with the RCMP, and they mm-hmm. say, you know, if, if these kids would quit doing other drugs and alcohol and start eating edibles, the whole world would change. Okay. Gunas, thank you so much for calling. Oh, one more thing, one more thing. Sure. To, to say every time we eat a jelly or smoke a joint, it should not be called a used or did you use. Because to say used is to, insin- is to insinuate using uh, illicit street drugs. Yeah, I mean, I, need, I, I, I know, I know, I know. Language is complicated. I was going to say, I know language is complicated. I, 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 I looked carefully at our language before we started, and I know some people feel that way about the word "use." I have to say, I certainly do not mean if I use that verb to imply that it's uh, a, an you know improper or illicit substance. But you know what, Gunas? Oh yeah. Yeah. Not to me, but to, other, but to your listeners that are trying to learn something here. Not yeah. to me, I understand what you're saying it as. But for them to hear the, it associated with the word use, did you use marijuana? It, it's, it's, it's tying it to an illicit drug rather than an illegal drug. Okay, listen, there's a lot thank of wisdom in what, in what you've said. Thank you very much, Gunas, for calling. Peace, guys. Have a good day.
And I should also say to those of you who are listening, you know, this this kind of program where we're asking people for their anecdotes, basically, right? We're not going to fact check if somebody says, as Gunas did, the the what he feels are the medical impacts of uh, of of cannabis. Uh, you know, it's. It, those are his stories about what he's seen, uh, which is why we also have experts here. And uh, we are going to go back to uh, to our scientist uh, um, about this a, a little bit later on. And one of the things I'll also ask him about is the accuracy of studies, because that is the world he lives in, in terms of probably conducting the studies, but certainly uh, interpreting them. And, and uh, I'm sure social scientists are always thinking about how accurate is this data that we have. This is Cross Country Checkup. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. We are live. Coming to you from the CBC studios in Vancouver. What impact has the legalization of pot had on you, your family, or your community? In 15 minutes' time, it's our Ask Me Anything. We'll have a military expert and an expert on diplomacy to talk about the Israel-Hamas war. In fact, more than just talk about it, they're here to answer your questions. So if you would like to... Put one of those questions to either or both of those experts. Our number, same one, one 416 8333 You can also text questions for the AMA, 226-758-8924. Well, when legalization happened five years ago, one of the story angles was the business of cannabis. According to the latest numbers from Stats Canada, legal cannabis now makes up 70% of the market. Despite that, the industry in many places is struggling to make a profit. Producers and retailers facing facility closures and layoffs. Michael Armstrong is an associate professor of operations research at Brock University. He studies the cannabis industry in Canada, and we've reached him in St. Catharines, Ontario. Hi. Hello. Let's go back to 2018. So much optimism about legalization in terms of business opportunities. What ended up happening? Well, we saw a huge amount of growth. So back in October 2018, there were only about 100 stores open across Canada uh, selling cannabis. Uh, here in Ontario, we had none at all that for those first few months. Uh, but uh, the provinces steadily o- opened more and more stores. And now we have over 3,600 uh, across the country. So along with that uh, growth in the retail network, we saw growth in stores, or sorry, in sales. Uh, the latest numbers from Statistics Canada indicate that annualized basis, we're, we're selling about $5.5 billion of cannabis per year in Canada. Uh, so that puts it roughly on the scale about half the size of the beer industry. Hmm. So to go from uh, nothing to uh, five and a half billion in five years uh, is quite quite a growth spurt. In some neighborhoods in Toronto, from what I hear, certainly some places in Vancouver, there's so many stores, you kind of wonder how can they all stay in business? What's the answer to that? Well, unfortunately, I think the answer is that they're not all going to stay in business. So <laughs> I, the, the number of stores I gave, that's kind of the, the national total. So we really have to distinguish we've got Ontario and the Western provinces who've gone with private sector stores, businesses. There we have far more stores than average. Alberta is still number one uh, stores per capita. If you look at Quebec and most Atlantic provinces, they went with government-owned stores. And the government agencies expanded much uh, more slowly. Um, So partly because of that, the retailing in Quebec and the Atlantic is actually very profitable, uh, whereas in Ontario and the West, 
Uh, you've got a, a lot of stores in some places, as you said, too many stores fighting for not enough consumers to support them. There was also hope that the legalization would uh, not just cut into the illegal sale of, of cannabis, but pretty well eliminate it. What's happened there? I don't think it was ever realistic to think you would completely eliminate, um, certainly not just by legalization itself. So uh, the statistic you just quoted uh, a few minutes ago, Statistics Canada estimates very roughly about 70% of cannabis is now uh, obtained legally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really hard number to judge. Uh, but any, even if it's you know 60 or 50%, again, to go enter Canada, keep in mind, we had a very strong, vibrant, illegal industry. So to set up a brand new legal industry and compete against that existing uh, industry and take over more than half the market in five years, um, that's a really big change. I mean, if I were to open a soft drink company, could I get 50% of the market away from Coke or Pepsi in five years? Mm, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, but so, so why do you think people are, whether it's 30% or 40% or 50%, uh, those who are sticking with non, I don't know, ec maybe we call them extra legal, but at least non-government regulated uh, <laughs> stores, whatever you, don't, you, I think people know what I'm trying to say here. The, uh, we the can call them the, dealers if you yeah, want. Yeah, I was going to say the people who stick with their dealers, what's the appeal? Uh, I think a large part of it is going to be a habit. I mean, if you or I go into the grocery store, um, you know, for me at least, there's, I, there's certain types of cereal I buy. It almost, you know, I recognize the color of the box I buy. It. I know I like it. I'm gonna. I keep buying it unless I have a big reason to change. So I think one of the drivers is just if you have a dealer nearby who uh, has given you good product over the years, uh, he's given you a decent price. In fact, the price has probably come down since legalization. Uh, you like what you're getting, you're not necessarily a big rush to change that. Um, we have, uh, you know, some people, depending what they particularly want, uh, if they want really high potency edibles, those are not available in the legal market. And there's, there's potentially good reasons why that's the case, but, you know, there's certain product types that aren't quite available. Um, if you, there are still some areas, uh, some municipalities that have banned stores, uh, which is basically those chunks of the market for uh, the dealers. So there's a combination of reasons. Um, but I think just the fact that you've got 50 to 70% shows that a legal industry can compete as long as you have enough stores to make it convenient. If you've got product quality competitive with the illegal industry and you've got prices at least close to what the illegal market is selling. Let me finish with a question I've asked some of our other experts, and from your perspective as a business professor looking at the, you know, this, this part of uh, the legalization of cannabis, anything strike you as, as kind of the headline or notable in terms of what Canada got right or wrong from a commercial standpoint with legalization? Um, we've kind of gone through, uh, in terms of the private sector, we're, we are going through a kind of a standard boom and bust uh, you know, some places had too many stores. Uh, partly that was, you know, just natural entrepreneurship. Partly that was the way the licensing process worked, particularly in Ontario, aggravated that. Um, so I think there are lots of things. Another country, like if you're in Germany or the Netherlands, who are now debating this, uh, there's lots of things they can learn from us. Uh, but they should also be thinking, okay, you know, Canada is kind of the rough model. Now, how can we improve that uh, to do even better? 
All right, Michael, thank you so much for speaking with us. My pleasure. Michael Armstrong, an associate professor of operations research at Brock University. He studies the cannabis industry in Canada. And remember, coming up in just a few minutes on our AMA, two experts here to answer your questions about the Israel-Hamas war, a former Canadian major general and a uh, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. You can start calling now with your AMA questions, 1-888-416-8333, or you can drop a line to cbc.ca slash aircheck. But until then, uh, we're looking at the impact of legalization of cannabis in Canada. And our next uh, caller, we're not revealing her name because uh, she's worried about uh, what she'll say might affect her work. Uh, We'll use the name Cheryl for her. She's calling from here in British Columbia. Hi, Cheryl. Hi. You're a psychologist uh, at at some high schools. And uh, what are you seeing in terms of legalization of, of cannabis? Right. So I've been in the position for over 20 years. And what I have noticed is that there has to be a great deal of caution for young people using cannabis. Mm-hmm. I've had several students myself who uh, totally unbeknownst to them, the impact of the cannabis has been just like that father hit said. It uh, really brought on mental illness and it starts with a paranoia and then it just develops and it's really hard for the young person. I think one of the aspects there is that uh, when you're older and you use a drug by choice, uh, by that age, your mental health profile is pretty well revealed. Whereas with young people, that late adolescence and uh, early adulthood frequently is when there could be a possibility of mental illness developing. Mm -hmm. And so these young people, they don't have that knowledge. So they're taking a risk without having been given the knowledge. I would really support uh, further research in the area of the impact of cannabis because it's just hitting them at a time when their life has possibilities and then um, they get caught up with the usage and the mental health impact and then they're just, uh, their life's put on hold for a significant mm-hmm. time. And And in your role as a psychologist dealing with these students, how do you get the message to them. You have to be so careful. You're listening to them. You don't want to come down hard on them. How, what, what's, how do you, what message do you give them if, if, you're, if you're concerned about their, their use of cannabis? You're exactly right in that. And it seems to be that at a certain point when their life has become so overwhelming, then they're more open for that knowledge. Previous to that, the whole world tells them it's a wonderful thing and they feel it themselves that it at certain points switches up their mood and makes more upbeat. But at a certain point when it gets more serious and they're open and their family is super open to having the support. And then it, you're right. It takes the right person, no judgment, non-accusatory, just going in on, uh, how's this impacting you and what would you like? Mm-hmm. How would you like to see change? Cheryl, I, uh, I I so appreciate your call, and I wish you the best of luck in your work as a psychologist uh, at high school. Such important work. Thank you. 
Yeah, I wish the young people too. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Uh, an apology to Nadine, uh, a, a caller who is waiting on the line, but uh, we're running out of time here with the AMA coming up. So my apologies to you. And and let's go to uh, an expert who's been with us throughout the program, Michael Chayton, a senior scientist at the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health. And uh, Michael, we only have a couple of minutes here before our Ask Me Anything, but I, I have two questions for you. First of all, you heard Gunas uh, say earlier, we really don't know know what, uh, you know, the stats are with young people and, uh, and marijuana use and problematic marijuana use, because uh, a lot of people didn't talk to, to the users. Uh, how, how good do you feel about the quality of data that you get to study? I, I think uh, people are still experts in their um, in their own experiences. And so when we ask about ask people about that, they're generally uh, uh, happy to 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 respond, um, and there have certainly been uh, other studies that have looked at how 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 things like stigma affect those responses. And the, generally, it's been pretty it's uh, pretty minimal uh, that most people uh, for something like cannabis use and even much more uh, uh, illegal or or sensitive questions. Uh, tend to be pretty honest when 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 talking to researchers most of the time, um, and so I mean we've been studying in particularly the prevalence of of cannabis use uh, for for many years. Uh, I think one thing that's certainly true though is that we are there is much that we don't know. Um, the companies, uh, many companies, were sort of interested in the idea of studying uh, the benefits of can of cannabis use before legalization. Um, and they, there were not a huge successes with those. And as soon as the product became legal, I think, uh, most of those companies dropped their search for, uh, medical solutions and mm-hmm. just went for the recreational product. Uh, and so there's just a lot we don't know about and much more research is needed to understand both the upsides and the downsides of, of cannabis use. Michael, one last question. We have only about a minute left, but I mean, I've certainly learned a lot by listening to you, the other experts, the callers. And one of the things is, as rare as it may be, um, there can be some dire consequences from overuse of cannabis. Then we hear others who talk about the importance of pain relief and uh, recreational use can be just that, recreational. Um, In a minute, what would your final words be to people who are listening? I I think that uh, both of those stories are probably true. Um, and it, but it's important to recognize for the people who are struggling with addiction, with psychosis, um, with other issues associated with cannabis, that there are places to get help. And uh, we certainly need more uh, access to care uh, for cannabis services, more types of uh, cannabis uh, uh, services that help people before it gets to the stage of needing to go to the emergency department or uh, inpatient facilities uh, that there, there, there needs to be more invested in the uh, in helping people who are suffering from mm-hmm. the real problems associated with cannabis. Michael, it's been good of you to uh, spend the last ninety minutes with us, and we've certainly benefited. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Michael Chayton, a senior scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and an associate professor with the University of Toronto's Dalla Lana School of Public Health. It's time for Ask Me Anything on the Israel-Hamas War. Ottawa says it now has a high degree of confidence that Israel did not strike the Al-Akhli hospital in Gaza City. Canada is announcing $50 million more 
It will address the urgent needs of the most vulnerable civilians in this crisis. Video feeds of both sides of the Rafah crossing show what appear to be trucks leaving Egypt and entering Gaza. It seems clear that an Israeli military ground assault in Gaza is imminent. This week, Israel's defense minister told his troops to prepare to see Gaza, quote, from the inside. But it's not clear when that will happen. In the meantime, a humanitarian disaster continues to unfold in Gaza. A second shipment of first aid supplies was delivered through the Egyptian border at Rafah today. But stories were emerging this past week of doctors having to perform surgeries by the light of mobile phones and using vinegar to treat infections. We have two guests here to answer your questions. Scott Clancy, retired Major General in the Canadian Armed Forces, who served, among other things, as the Director of Operations for NORAD. And John Allen is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He once served as Canada's ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010. They are both here live to take your calls and answer questions. You can ask them anything on the Israel-Hamas conflict, and uh, you can call us at 1-888-416-8333, or you can text us at 226-758-8924. Scott and John, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Ian. Thank you very much for having me. John, the Israeli military has made it clear from everything I've seen that they are going to go into Gaza. It's just a matter of when. Um, Looking at it from the diplomatic uh, perspective, do you think Israel has been facing pressure, including perhaps from the United States and other allies, to delay this invasion? I think they have been uh, facing pressure. I think there's a question of uh, 200-plus hostages, uh, perhaps a third of them that are foreign, Um, And I think there's a question of just um, the nature of the ground invasion. And I'm sure that uh, the United States and others are urging uh, Israel to be as pinpoint as possible to try and minimize the number of civilian casualties, uh, etc. So there's definitely some pressure there. And um, and uh, hopefully uh, Israel is taking that on board uh, and trying to figure out the best way to do this. Scott, last week on this program, I was asking you for military perspective on why Israel had not yet made an incursion into Gaza. Are you surprised it hasn't happened yet? Uh, maybe a little bit, in, but uh, really the same reasons that I'd stated last week, I think, are the same reasons that we have now. They need to prepare for deliberate offensive exactly along the lines of the, what John was talking about and the pressure. You want to be doing things so that you can delineate civilian and military targets. There's the issue of the hostages. I also think that providing some corridors for humanitarian aid is going to be important for this as well. And that's going to decrease the threat to the IDF as well. We're here live with Scott Clancy, a retired Major General in the Canadian Armed Forces, and John Allen, a former Canadian Ambassador to Israel. It is our Ask Me Anything, and this week it's on the Israel-Hamas war. You can give us a call and ask our experts questions at 1-888-416-8333. John, uh, as these civilian casualties grow in Gaza, what is it that other countries can say to Israel um, because, you know, for Israel, the, the attacks by Hamas were so atrocious. There is so much anger. There is the vow by Israel to destroy the Hamas leadership. So so 
what can the message be from Israel's allies in terms of, uh, I don't know, either changing their plan or slowing down their plan? Well, I think the messages can be twofold. On the one hand, um, understand, Israel, that you've had the sympathy of the world because of the horrors of the attack that took place. There's little sympathy for Hamas, and therefore try by being as careful as you can not to waste that sympathy by incurring the wrath certainly of the global south and the mid-east but of others uh, in uh, exposing uh, civilians it's a very difficult um, uh, task for the israelis but also i think uh, it behooves the israelis to try and take the time and figure out exactly where they want to go and what they want to do and what they're going to end up with Uh, Getting rid of the political and the military leaders of Hamas is one thing, and maybe that's why they're also taking some time. They're trying to figure out exactly where they are and how to get at them. But um, going going beyond that, what's the end game? Uh, What is going to happen afterwards? These are things that Israel should be thinking about, and I hope world leaders are talking to them about that. And and John, the second shipment of humanitarian aid, uh, I assume, but I'll ask you for your perspective, is this tied to the the diplomatic pressures on Israel? Oh, uh, I, I think Israel gets it. Um, imposing a human shield uh, was not a good idea. I understand not letting fuel in, a dual use could be used by Hamas. But uh, both diplomatically and from a humanity perspective, not allowing food uh, and water and medicines in was was not a good idea. And I hope it will flow uh, as fast as it can and as much as it can. Scott, Israel has been attacking Gaza from the air for days now. Just this past Friday, a district in northern Gaza was was leveled. What's the strategy behind these attacks? I think the main strategy behind these attacks is to limit the amount of physical capabilities that Hamas can present to the Israeli Defense Forces as they prepare to uh, invade into Gaza. So basically, they're softening up the actual military targets that Hamas has in preparation for the ground assault, that they have ramped up those air assaults and artillery assaults in the last 24 hours indicates to me that a ground offensive would be coming sooner rather than later. But but this all speculation, obviously. We're live here on Cross Country Checkup. This is our Ask Me Anything portion of the show. And you can call right now if you have questions to our two experts about the Israel-Hamas war. Our phone number is one 888 You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck or text a question to 226 758 8924. Ahmed Shems is uh, calling us from Kitchener. Hi, Ahmed. Hello. Thank you for calling. What, what's your question? My question is, um, just considering um, how many civilian deaths tend to happen um, when Israel um, launches airstrikes against buildings, um, why a ground strike isn't just the first thing that they do, just because it makes sense that it would be more surgical and there perhaps would be a lot less collateral damage. So I'm just wondering, uh, particularly from the, the military expert, why a ground strike um, is not the thing that they do first rather than launch airstrikes that uh, seem to kill a, a lot of people and 
and get the uh, get the world upset. So I'm just yeah. curious if why they don't just do a ground invasion first or, yeah, or only. Yeah, and stay on the line, Ahmed. I mean, I'll come back to you to see if you have a follow-up question. But um, but Scott Clancy, what, what's your answer? That, that that's a great question from Ahmed. Okay, so from a military perspective. It's going to be a lot less costly for the Israeli Defense Forces to surgically strike at a a target from the air. Now, I think everybody knows and understands this, that it comes with higher collateral damage. Okay, Uh, except that, you know, for the Israeli Defense Forces, they're going into a population where, you know, more than 50 percent of the population in Gaza is below the age of 18. Vast majority of those have been radicalized by Hamas. They're going to be facing, you know, threats at every single corner, being able to target and diminish those threats beforehand. They've given leaflet drops. They even call people in the buildings, you know, I, I listened to a briefing by a senior Israeli defense, you know, official where they know the people who are living in those buildings, they call them and tell them to get out before they strike those buildings. Uh, that Hamas is using those buildings as military targets, you know, they lose their protection under the Geneva Conventions and the laws of armed conflict. And that's the rationale that the Israeli Defense Forces is using and why they strike those with air strikes first. Ahmed, do you have a follow-up question? Uh, yeah, um, I've just heard reports that even with the, I forget exactly what they're called officially when they, you know, let them know. Um, I've heard reports of people going to the south as as um, wanted by the, the IDF in Israel and still getting hit. And I know how densely populated Gaza is. I'm just, I'm just wondering if there's perhaps a, an easier way, just given that people, like so many people still end up being killed if, and given that, I don't know if it was the defense minister or, or one of the generals saying that it's not about accuracy right now, it's about damage. I'm just wondering if perhaps things could be done a lot better. Uh, that's why I'm asking you, because I'm not an expert. Yeah. What, well, what thank, are your thoughts? thank you, Ahmed. Uh, Scott? Uh, you know, this is always going to be a very difficult question. And, and I, I, you know, I feel, you know, people who haven't worked in the military realm, you know, the difficulty of answering this. Israel is striking across the board inside of Gaza, all military targets that it can find where Hamas's leadership is at. It has not said that it won't strike targets in the south, even though it has told the population, you know, majority to move uh, out of the northern portions. It's focusing its attacks on the northern portion, but not ruling out where those targets arrive in the south. Now, from a Canadian perspective or an Occidental perspective, we will consider the collateral damage on each and every strike of whether that's worth the military uh, advantage that's gained. And those are the exact words out of uh, international humanitarian law. But whether or not we strike that still means whether we're willing to accept that level of collateral damage. And what you're seeing from the Israelis is they're willing to accept a significant amount of collateral damage. Now, here's the second thing. Collateral damage is being reported by Hamas. You know, we say the Palestinian Health Authorities, but they're controlled by Hamas. So what we don't know is how many actual soldiers of Hamas are killed versus civilians. Yeah, and uh, I guess two things. First of all, the fog of war, any war in any part of the country, any part of the world. And uh, we certainly saw that with uh, the explosion that happened um, just outside the hospital a few days ago, and your analysis on that, uh, Scott, was was bang on uh, early on on that. But and I'd also say to people who are listening, we have these two experts, one on military strategy and one on diplomacy, and their answers won't be what or I think 
many times won't be on what should happen, but what is likely happening or kind of the expert view on that. And so I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate that analysis and answer to those questions. Let's go to Stephanie Blackman, who is in Montreal. Hi, Stephanie. Yes, hello, good evening. Uh, what's your question for our experts? Uh, yes, thank you. I wanted to ask, what is the best way to keep the hostages safe? Because uh, if Israel does not comply with the demands of these depraved psychopaths, obviously their lives are in serious danger. Now, could Canada do anything? Can other nations do something? What can we do? Yeah, Stephanie, thank you very much for the call. And, and uh, I feel like that's a good question to put to uh, to a former Canadian ambassador to, to Israel. John, what can Canada do? Well, Canada is going to be working with a lot of other nations, uh, obviously with the United States, with the other countries that have hostages there, dual nationals or pure Canadians. Um, but we're also going to be relying on the Qataris, uh, the Turks, and the Egyptians who actually have relations, direct relations with Hamas. And uh, it's our understanding that it was the Qataris that were responsible for the release of the two Americans. And I think we're all hoping uh, that those lines of communication remain open and that um, the Qataris and others are trying to uh, explain to Hamas that um, uh, if if they if this can be explained to them that um, it's their people, the Palestinian people in the south, in the north, that are going to suffer um, if they continue to hold those hostages uh, and if they continue to fire fire rockets into Israel. But it's an extremely tough situation. Of, I imagine for the political and military leadership of Hamas, this is their ultimate protection. And uh, we just all pray and hope um, that somehow these people can be released uh, uh, unharmed. And, and John, drawing on your past experience, and I don't know if you know anything about the present situation, and if you do, I'm not asking you about that because I don't want to endanger anything that's going on, but, but drawing on your past experience, how, how does Canada even get a seat at the sort of proverbial table here as these delicate negotiations or discussions, maybe they're not negotiations, discussions are going on with Hamas in this life or death battle. How does Canada even get a voice in that or does it? We get a voice because we've got people on the ground. Uh, we've got um, a number of uh, Canadian dual nationals, uh, perhaps the most famous is Vivian Silver, who my wife and I knew very well while we were there, a peace activist, a woman that spent her whole life working for peace between Palestinians and Israelis who was captured and is being held hostage. So because we have people on the ground, because we have Canadian nationals that are also trying to get out, we get a... a place at the table, um, and we do what we can, um, but we're really working, um, as I said, with the other countries that have real influence. Um, we can make our, our case known. We can hope for a, a humanitarian resolution that protects uh, the hostages, but it's the people on the ground, um, the Israelis, as I said, the Egyptians, Qataris, to some extent the Turks, um, who can try and make a difference here, who can 
hopefully get more hostages released, the children, the women, uh, and the older people, and leave the soldiers there if that's the last game in town. John Allen is a former Canadian ambassador to Israel. Scott Clancy, retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces. They're here to answer your questions. We are live on CBC Radio and uh, the CBC Listen app. And our phone number is 1-888-416-8333. You can text us at 226-758-8924. Our next caller is Jeffrey Beckner, who's in Kitchener. Hi, Jeffrey. Hello. I see a note here that your question's kind of complex and, and some advice from our producer that maybe we can break it down to a couple of questions. So keep that in mind yep. as you as you ask your question, Jeffrey. Well, let me set myself up just quickly, and that is that uh, I happen to be um, a social justice advocate and peace advocate for well over um, 40 years. That said, coming back to the question is, and so I'm an expert on violence, um, head researcher and program director for Metro Men Against Violence for, for a number of years. That said, um, I am concerned with the um, Hamas and, and all is and Israel not taking into consideration or taking into consideration the amount of uh, overwhelming um, uh, lethal um, response to what they've done or what they are doing. And um, likewise, if they're not taking into consideration the world's response to this, because it's just, it's devastating. Um, and, uh, you know, and life is so precious, but it seems like we're talking collateral damage as if it's not human lives. Mm-hmm. So help me figure out even who to direct that question to. Like, okay. I, I definitely hear, Jeffrey, that part, like, you, you're, you're feeling... Okay, go ahead. Both military and po- and politically and diplomatically and other and humanically wise, mm-hmm. um, you know, first of all, Hamas did an absolute horrendous massacre, but at the same time, there is a, a reverse massacre going on right now, uh, and and although they're, they're trying to make it strategic, if if you will, they are. Literally, you know, um, hundreds of thousands are dying, thousands are dying, and then eventually hundreds of thousands are are, are suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, my sense of the rest of the world is um, aghast at, at what's going on. And have they not taken that into consideration, both militarily and then diplomatically around the world? Yeah. Okay, Jeffrey, thank you uh, for articulating, I think, the the anguish and helplessness that a lot of people feel. And, uh, you know, John, let me put this question to you. John Allen, a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, what, what do you say to, to people like Jeffrey and, and other Canadians who, who look at this and feel like we can't turn away and yet we feel like there's nothing we can do about this loss of life on both sides. Well, uh, I think, to be honest with you, everybody that is not directly involved in the situation, or most people that are not, are not directly involved, feel this being torn apart. Um, I must say, on the one hand, I understand Israel's need, desire, both military and emotional and political, to respond. Um, 1,400 people uh, dead, 
uh, massacred. Um, their society could not simply stand by and say, okay, uh, you know, there's hostages and, and, and there are people that are going to be killed. We're going to just do nothing because there would be a, a real fear amongst Israelis who are, are psychologically traumatized anyways all the time, although we find that hard to believe, but it is true. There's a fear that Hamas will do it again. There's a fear that, that Hezbollah will then see weakness and do it, or that the Iranian National Guard in Syria will see weakness and do it. So they feel compelled to respond, but they they respond in an urbanized area, whereas uh, our other guest pointed out, you've got snipers, you've got IEDs, um, uh, and, and Hamas willing to do whatever it takes to kill as many uh, Israelis as possible. I mean, we have to remember that Hamas's charter basically says that Israel should be wiped off the face of the earth and that the Jews there should should be gone. That's the enemy, unfortunately, they're dealing with. But mm -hmm. they're dealing with it in the midst of a civilian population that suffers every time. This is the sixth time. Every time they send rockets in there. And uh, they know that. Uh, unfortunately, Israel knows it. This time is is different in, in a way. They're they're gonna Israel's gonna try and go after these people. Mm -hmm. okay. This is war, and there's inevitably collateral damage. And it's a horrible word, but um, unfortunately, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for this. Now I'm kind of looking at the clock and we have less than four minutes in total. I'm going to have a, a question here for Scott and then maybe a short last word from you, John and Scott Clancy, our retired Major General. My question to you is this. Last night, fairly late, even Pacific time, we saw a statement by uh, the Canadian Armed Forces saying that it had reviewed the intelligence on the explosion outside the hospital and it feels like it is highly unlikely, I think was the phrase that uh, Israel was responsible for this. I was surprised to see that statement. I wonder why it came out late on a Saturday night and days after other countries like the United States had weighed in. Uh, from your perspective as a former senior officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, what was your perspective on it? Yeah, so the timing of that announcement seems a little bit odd to me as well. I think that uh, there's uh, some political um, things at play there. I'm not sure that, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, as soon as the information was available to the, you know, to the senior leadership that it was necessarily believed. And, and that's okay. I think that's why there's civilian control over top of the military. So, you know, if we're taking at face value what the IDF says, then maybe the, you know, political powers that be are saying, go back and find some sort of other proof that leads to, uh, you know, that recognition. But, let, but let's be clear, the Israeli Defense Forces came out with, here's all the proof that we have that we did not do this. And Hamas just said, no, the bad guys did this. And, you know, to be clear, we had the balance of probabilities, you know, in, in the first couple of hours after uh, that horrific uh, attack, which was an accident anyways. Like, I don't, I'm not, nobody's saying that, you know, the Islamic... Uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad actually meant to do that. It was a misfired rocket. And uh, just maybe in a minute, Scott, um, one of the things I, I was wondering about is what access to foreign intelligence would the Canadian Armed Forces have in a situation like this? So I'd say the number one access to foreign intelligence would 
be our connections with the Americans and the British through our Five Eyes community. And I think that that intelligence serving, which has, has been fundamental to our ability to see threats into the future for many years and decades, uh, would be the foundation with which we would uh, share intelligence. And that's probably where uh, any additional proof came from. Hmm. Be an interesting uh, series of meetings to be part of. Uh, John, uh, last comment from you. We have really only a minute left, but uh, as we hope that diplomacy um, has uh, a, a positive impact between Israel and Hamas, uh, what guidance would you give us? What last comment would you make? Well, just on the last point, um, I would say that unfortunately the damage has already been done and most, if not all of the Middle East, still believes that Israel dropped the bomb that caused that. Uh, secondly, um, I think what we want is this to end as quickly as possible with the least civilian damage as possible, and then we've got to move on to root causes. We've got to begin to deal with the substantive issues around how do we get to a Palestinian state, what has to be done in terms of uh, democracy elections in the West Bank, how do we govern Gaza after this uh, in an interim basis, but let's move on, let's try and ensure that we don't have a seventh and an eighth conflict. There, there are ways to avoid it, but it needs compromise and it needs hard work and new governments in both countries. Mm -hmm. John Allen is Canada's former ambassador to Israel and a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. And Scott Clancy is a retired major general in the Canadian Armed Forces, where he served, among other things, as a tactical helicopter pilot. Thanks to both of you, gentlemen. Thank you, Ian. And that's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from October 22nd, 2023. If you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks to everyone who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Chuck Mulga, Katrina Magahi, and Tori Goodwin. Special thanks to the CBC's Julie Dupree and the team at Ontario Today. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, Dragan Maricic, and Richard Grundy. Technical production and editing from Stefan Oprishko and Matthias Wilson. Our program assistant is Mackenzie Rubello. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Rachel DeGasperis and Steve Howard. Our digital producer is Paul Hanchia. The senior producer of the program is Richard Goddard, and I'm Ian Hanamansing in Vancouver. The next edition of Check Up the Podcast will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.